Hello and welcome to the Halashay Anthology podcast. I'm your host, Shay Michael, and today we have a very special guest. We're going to talk to Harvard's top astronomer, Avi Loeb. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of the book Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. This book is amazing. Uh, it details the 2017 case of Oumuamua. If you haven't read it, please get it. And today we're going to talk to him about, yes, that book, but also about NASA's recent formation of a panel which is investigating UAPs or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, better known as freaking alien craft or UFOs. And uh, this is one of my favorite topics. So um, I have a lot of questions for him. He has a lot more answers for me. So we're going to dive into this. I think you're going to get blown away with what he has to say. So let's get into it. Hello, Dr. Avi Loeb. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing well. You know, I guess let's just jump right into it then. So um, the formation of the 16-member panel with NASA to study UAPs has uh, kicked off. I think it kicked off on October 24th. Um, I, was, I was there, actually. Uh, I, I met with the committee. It's 16 members, yes. And so uh, they're studying UAPs, but they say that they are not extraterrestrial in origin. What are they doing? What are they studying? What they are looking at is data that is not classified. And they are supposed to be agnostic and advise NASA whether to get engaged in funding research on unidentified aerial phenomena. That's their task. And by next summer, they're supposed to deliver a report uh, telling NASA whether they, uh, whether and how they might engage in such research. And um, at the moment... Um, we already have such research in the context of the Galileo project that I lead. Uh, it started a year ago. Uh, we have a, a suite of instruments that we are already using now to start collecting data. And we would analyze this data with artificial intelligence uh, software. So irrespective of what the NASA panel decides about funding from NASA to such research, we already within the Galileo project are doing such research. And uh, the, the goal is to get new data that will be of higher quality than the government currently has, because we don't expect the government to declassify the best data they have. It would indicate the, the kind of sensors they're using. And uh, in fact, tomorrow there should be a report delivered to Congress about some of the data that uh, was already looked at uh, by the new office in government. But my point is we shouldn't ask the government to declassify data because it will never happen. And it's a much better approach is to collect new data because the sky is not classified. Okay. And uh, why would they not declassify this data? Oh, because it reveals the type of sensors being used for national security purposes. So it's a matter of adversaries not knowing uh, the equipment that the U.S. is using to monitor the sky and look for... Um, suspicious activities that could endanger national security. Uh, and so it's not about the data, it's about the instruments being used that the government uh, possesses. And as a result, if you take off-the-shelf instrumentation like we are doing within the Galileo project, we don't have that problem. We can uh, make the data open. We will analyze it in a transparent way. I think that's the way to move forward because... Um, uh, whatever objects are out there, we could figure them out. And uh, rather than rely on anecdotes or eyewitness testimonies, 
let's rely on instruments that can reproduce data where we know exactly what they're doing. We calibrate our instruments, we control them, and uh, it's not the, a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet that we are using to monitor what's happening. Yeah, so NASA, with um, you know, trying to protect their instruments and obviously um, security of like the U.S., uh, they are also staying away from saying that they're doing any sort of research to f- discover what these UAPs are or if they are of uh, extraterrestrial origin. So, what exactly are they doing, though? What, why are they? Why are so they? The NASA panel is not looking into classified data. It's looking just at unclassified, which we all saw because it's unclassified. So everyone saw this data. There is nothing new that they will look at that you don't know about, okay? Because it's unclassified. In that sense, they're asking the general question, given the unclassified data, should NASA invest funds in research towards figuring out what these unidentified objects are? And what I'm saying is, irrespective of that, the Galileo Project is already doing that. And we are funded by private donations. So we don't need... Uh, to rely on the decision of this committee. So the research is already being done as we speak. Okay. Now, uh, separate from that, the most interesting data is the classified data that NASA is not looking into. The panel is not looking into that, but the government has such data. And that's the most interesting one because it's the highest quality data that was not released to the public because they don't want to reveal the type of sensors they are using. And um, but there will be a report from the uh, intelligence agencies and Department of Defense that will be delivered to Congress. It will have a classified component that we will not be uh, aware of. Um, but there will be uh, an unclassified component that will presumably be uh, available to the public next week. Um, so the issue is really what is the assessment of the new office in government, not NASA. There are two different things. There is an office that has access to classified information. That's the interesting uh, office, not NASA, because the classified data is the higher quality data that the government owns. But I'm saying, irrespective of what the government owns, we can collect new data. Why should we rely on past data? Yes, true. You know, it's just like having eyes and you ask yourself, what is there in the room? So the way to find out is to open your eyes and look at the room, right? There is nothing complicated about that. And if other people are using classified cameras to look at the room, you say, I don't care about your cameras. I will use my eyes to look at the room. So that's what the Galileo Project is doing. Looking at the sky, taking a video 24-7 all the time, video of the sky, in the infrared, in the optical band, in radio, in audio, getting all the data, and then analyzing it. There is nothing simpler than that. And then you check, are there objects in the sky? Yes, there are. What are they? Is it natural? Is it a bird, a bug, a thunderstorm, a meteor? Is it human-made, a drone, a weather balloon, a satellite? Let's see if there is anything else other than these two categories. That's very simple. We don't need to know what the government saw in the past because if there is something in the sky, we will see it. The only aspect that this NASA panel addresses is whether NASA should invest funds in this research. But what I'm saying is we already have funds, so we don't depend on this decision. 
And moreover, the panel is looking only at unclassified data and therefore the most interesting data is not available for them to look at. Uh, what kind of, uh, so I mean, I'm familiar with the Galileo, Galileo project, but what sort of funds do you guys have? What sort of suite of instruments do you guys use to you know, scan the skies? Well, funds have only one measure. It, it, you cannot ask what source of funds. Funds are a number of dollars that we, we got $4 million, okay? Uh, and uh, we, are, we have three branches of the Galileo project. Uh, one is uh, to look at these unidentified aerial phenomena, to see what is up there in the sky and distinguish between natural objects that are familiar, uh, human-made objects that are also familiar, and ask whether there is anything else that may not be from this Earth, potentially. Okay, so that's one branch, and we have the suite of instruments starting to collect data now. Um, and then the second branch of the Galileo project is uh, uh, to look at uh, interstellar meteors. These are objects that came from outside the solar system and happened to collide with Earth. Mm -hmm. And only uh, over the past decade, uh, we identified such things. Actually, we did that. We discovered them with uh, my student, Amir Siraj, the first two interstellar meteors uh, in a government uh, catalog. Okay. Um, and the, the first one was uh, in 2014 off the coast of Papua New Guinea. It uh, landed about 100 miles off the coast and exploded. And the fragments are on the ocean floor. So... What we are planning is an expedition to scoop the ocean floor for the fragments from this meteor because it appeared to be the toughest among all space hmm. rocks that were recorded by the government, about 273 of them. So it's tougher than iron Yeah. Uh, based on the point where it exploded, disintegrated in the Earth atmosphere. It was very low in the atmosphere. So it somehow survived all the way down to the lower atmosphere. And then it, so we infer that its material strength was tougher than iron. And the question is, what is it? Uh, if it's not right. a, a stone, uh, it's not a rock made of iron, uh, what could it be? It could potentially be artificial. And mm -hmm. so we are going to scoop the material and, and examine its composition to see if it's a, an artificial alloy or a natural object. So that's the second one. And this expedition hopefully will take place within six months and we have full funding for it at one and a half million dollars. Oh, wow. Uh, it will involve a boat with a sled and a magnet that scoop the ocean floor to look for those fragments okay. near Papua. And then the third is uh, a space mission, designing a space mission that would rendezvous with interstellar objects. There was one identified um, in 2017 called Oumuamua. I wrote a book about it called Exoterrestrial, and it appeared uh, to have many anomalies. Uh, uh, and so uh, it doesn't look like an asteroid or a comet of the type that we had seen before. So perhaps, you know, some of the interstellar objects are of artificial origin. And so what we want to do is once the next Oumuamua is identified on its approach to us, we want to design a space mission that will rendezvous with it so that we can come close to it and take a photograph, a high-resolution image of it because a picture is worth a 1,000 words. And in my case, it's worth 66,000 words, the number of words in the book. So this, this kind of a mission will be much more expensive, more than a billion dollars, but uh, we are currently doing the design of such a mission and then uh, hopefully we can uh, uh, propose it to a space agency like NASA 
uh, to do. Uh, so that is the third branch of the Galileo project. So uh, what got you sort of, I know, like I know in your book, you, all, you, you know, you, it sort of has like this memoirish feel to it. And you sort of take us into kind of when you were living uh, on the farm and, you know, you always claim to be, have like sort of like a childlike uh, imagination, but also of course you're grounded in science. Uh, what has gotten you on this path of like, and it's very controversial now with like other scientists of saying like, you know, there is life outside of um, this planet. Oh, it was very simple. It was the evidence about the, the first interstellar object, Oumuamua, hmm. uh, that looked puzzling and anomalous. And, you know, just like the kid the, that uh, suggested that the emperor has no clothes, you know, and uh, uh, I remained uh, true to the fact that this object is not a comet or an asteroid of the type that we had seen. And in fact, uh, the, even the mainstream of the astronomy community agrees with me on that. Uh, they would argue it's not artificial, but it's a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Like, for example, a hydrogen iceberg or a chunk of frozen nitrogen or a dust bunny. These are things we've never seen before. Each of them has challenges, but all of them are of a type that we've never seen before. They agree with me on that. They just want it to be natural. And I say... Let's allow for the artificial option. <laughs> and uh, because uh, in the past we searched for radio signals uh, and that may be the wrong approach. Uh, for 70 years, we looked for a phone call, uh, waiting at home for a phone call. And perhaps there is some letters in our mailbox. You know, that's a completely different method for finding that um, there is someone out there. And we haven't checked our mailbox until recently. Only over the past decade, uh, the first interstellar objects were discovered. So to me, that was a revelation that they look different than rocks. And I say that the first interstellar meteor appeared to be tougher than iron and was moving faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. Uh, and uh, Oumuamua looked weird. It was flat, pushed away from the sun by some mysterious force without a cometary tail. So I'm saying, you know, we should consider the possibility that these objects that enter the solar system, basically our mailbox, so to speak, uh, are letters from someone else. Yeah, and I mean, it, that doesn't sound like too fantastical, right? Like the public opinion on like, no. uh, yeah, it, that. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like, scientific you know of course like that yeah. there are other like possibilities but why is the scientific community not so like why are they not so accepting of this well uh because it's a completely new uh frontier and often there is resistance for that experts that worked on rocks for decades would like to explain everything in the sky in terms of rocks you know that that's the natural tendency just like a cave dweller used to playing with rocks would argue that a cell phone is a rock of a type that we've never seen before, you know, so that's... Um, but um, moreover, uh, beyond that, um, it, you know, it's... Uh, we need to keep in mind that the sun is a late star. It's a star that formed 4.6 billion years ago, and most stars formed around 10 billion years ago. So if you just imagine the clock... Uh, initiated near these stars, the technological clock initiated a few billion years before us, you know, by now these civilizations do not exist anymore because their star burnt up the surface of the planet that uh, led to their existence. So 
just like we have only one billion years before the sun will burn up uh, all oceans on earth will boil off the ocean so so the point is they already represent our future because we formed relatively late and uh, the the senders are not around but uh, if they sent gadgets into the milky way galaxy uh, by chemical propulsion these gadgets are still bound gravitationally to the milky way they cannot escape uh, the, their speed is too low whereas if they send you know radio signals those are at the edge of the universe by now because they move at the speed of light so looking for radio signals from dead civilizations is not a good idea a much better approach is to look at this basket of the milky way galaxy that collected all the equipment that was sent over the past few billion years and see what we find there and uh, we shouldn't make any assumptions because perhaps there are probes near earth uh, that came from far away but um, one um, important point to keep in mind is if uh, probes are sent to the habitable region around the star like sun that's where the earth is where you can have liquid water on the surface of a planet like the earth a rocky planet um and then the chemistry of life as we know it if the probe intends to go targets that region uh you need ma- many fewer uh objects than if uh, we're talking about objects that are not targeted at anything they just move randomly uh because the volume of the habitable region uh, around the sun is just one part in 10 to the power 16 of the volume the entire volume of the solar system so that means that you know if you wanted to do it with random trajectories you need 10 to the power 16 more objects for every detection of an unusual object like Oumuamua near earth uh, whereas if it was targeting that region then uh, you don't need as many and um, and and so that makes uh, uh, the detection of a, a, a probe like Oumuamua uh, much more reasonable in terms of the, bu- the the mass budget of objects that you need to send out. Yeah, and you wrote about that, saying that if that were possible, if that were natural, that there, we would have such a flood of these objects in the universe or in the cosmos that it would be not so natural, right? So this should... Well, in fact, in fact, um, a decade before Oumuamua was discovered, we wrote a paper where we forecasted how many rocks should be in interstellar space and it was orders of magnitude below what's needed to explain the abundance of Oumuamua, the detection of Oumuamua by the telescope in Hawaii, PANSTARS, given the survey volume. Uh, but um, beyond that, if you assume that it was on a random trajectory, then uh, within the solar system, there should be more objects like Oumuamua of the size of Oumuamua than there are natural objects that are bound to the sun. So if you go to the outskirts of the solar system, it's called the Oort cloud. There are these Lego pieces that uh, uh, were involved in the construction project of the planets, and they were uh, thrown into that region from the inner uh, region of the solar system, and they are called the Oort cloud. It's a collection of all these rocks that are left that were left from the early formation of the solar system. And the point is, there are more interstellar objects than solar system objects in that region so the way to think of it is a uh, the solar system is a dilute cloud uh, uh, moving through a, a, an ocean uh, of of these objects that is much 
that has a much larger abundance of objects of that size. And that's in, in the case where we are dealing with natural objects that are not targeting the inner part of the solar system. So it's really quite tantalizing to realize that interstellar objects are actually more abundant than solar system objects within the volume of the solar system if they are natural. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, Oumuamua was the first interstellar object detected. Report. Yeah. It was the first reported, but we found in the catalog of the U.S. government of meteors, uh, the first interstellar meteor in 2014. So that was almost four years before Oumuamua was discovered. And, but it's an object of much smaller size, roughly half a meter, 200 times smaller than Oumuamua, which was roughly the size of a football field. So for every Oumuamua-like object that is a size of a football field, there are about a million objects the size of a basketball that uh, can be found not by the reflection of sunlight, but as a result of their collision with the Earth so that they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. So they generate their own light. We are not relying on the reflection of sunlight. For Oumuamua, it was the reflection of sunlight. We can't see objects much smaller than Oumuamua with the current survey that they found Oumuamua. And the... But on the other hand, we can see meteors as they burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Uh, I saw kind of pivoting backwards, like um, what would be the irrefutable evidence for of like extraterrestrial life? Like here. Oh, it's very simple. Um, if we find an object and take a high resolution image of it that shows bolts and screws and perhaps even a label made on some exoplanet, we know it's artificial in origin. If we see it maneuvering, behaving in ways that human-made technologies cannot replicate, such as uh, moving extremely fast uh, or uh, changing its uh, location with a very high acceleration, then um, we would need to argue that it, it's technologies that we haven't yet developed. And it would be natural um, to find technologies that, are far superior to what we have because the chance of another civilization being exactly in the same phase in its evolution, technological evolution, is very small uh, because our technological evolution is only a century old. And that's uh, one part in a hundred million of the age of the Earth. So it means that most likely uh, civilizations are either much more primitive than we are, the way we were a million years ago, and in that case, in order to find them, you have to board a spacecraft that will land on their planet. And then you have to start searching for them through the trees in which they live, you know. Um, and that's very difficult. Frankly, I don't think we will ever do that. And then the second possibility is that they are much more advanced than we are, millions or billions of years more advanced. And in that case, what we would find are gadgets with artificial intelligence uh, that are far superior to the technologies we currently have. And we might not be able to reverse engineer them, just like a cave dweller that goes would go to New York City would not be able to reverse engineer the technologies that the cave dweller needs on the street. But we can still tell that uh, the gadget is not a rock, that it's not a natural object, and that it has capabilities that are way beyond what humans can replicate right now. So we can learn from it. My point is, 
it's an opportunity for us to advance our technologies, to learn about technologies that represent our future. And I already promised the curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City that if we find any gadget, uh, and I will have it in my possession, I'll bring it for display at MoMA because it represents our future. It's modernity for us, even though it represents ancient history for whoever sent it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Like, I mean, is that also the hope there too? Is that like the science community would be more open to these, um, to like, to these ideas? Well, the, the key is to find evidence that is undisputable uh, such that any reasonable person uh, would agree that it's a, a technological relic from another civilization. And uh, whoever still wants to ignore the facts um, is of no interest to me. I mean, I'm not seeking uh, uh, to be liked on Twitter or social media. It's not a popularity contest. It's basically figuring out what is the reality that surrounds us. And rather than relying on prejudice or prior beliefs, it's relying on evidence. And, you know, it's possible. I mean, it's a fishing expedition. We might not find anything. Uh, and in that case, we will report whatever we see. But uh, it's worth trying to look for it. Uh, just as an example, um, we don't know what most of the matter in the universe is. 84% of it is of a form that is not familiar to us, that we don't find in the solar system. It's called dark matter. And we invested billions of dollars in the search for dark matter, the nature of it. Uh, even though we don't see it in the solar system, we believe it exists out there. So I'm saying, even if we invest just 1% of those funds in the search for technological equipment from other civilizations, we have a good chance of getting interesting results or limits on the existence of such probes. And we haven't done that. So to me, it, it makes a much more interesting quest because it will have implications for the future of humanity as compared to finding a, an elementary particle uh, that was not part of our uh, experience before, that will not change the history of humanity as much. I actually just talked to uh, Govert Schilling. He has a foreword uh, with you on his like pre on his latest book uh, about dark matter and the search for dark matter. And um, there's, you know, there's a lot of money going out there. And some people would suggest that this money being, you know, um, invested in these sort of um, scientific scientific endeavors would be kind of, uh, they could go elsewhere, but you suggest that these like um, endeavors are good for uh, humanity, and that we would have more of an open um, mind when it comes to like searching for this. Well, we never know uh, what the dark matter is, and perhaps you know once we figure it out, it will have implications, uh, practical applications. Uh, uh, we could potentially harvest it, use it for propulsion. Who knows? So um, blue sky research is always uh, a good investment because, uh, you know, we might uh, discover something completely new that would pay off. And even if most of the time we don't find anything new, you know, just the one incident where we do uh, could pay for everything else. And a good example is uh, Einstein's theory of gravity. You know, there was no practical application. It was not clear that it's good for anything until uh, GPS systems needed it in order to get very precise localization. So now we are using 
GPS systems in our cars to navigate. And without uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, we wouldn't get to the precision needed from satellite data. And so you never know, blue sky research could lead to practical applications eventually because we are improving our knowledge of the reality that we live in. But the only way to make progress is by collecting new evidence because um, there are so many possibilities for what the reality might be. So people talk about extra dimensions. They talk about the multiverse. They, uh, I mean, these are hypothetical concepts that have no bearing on evidence, and yet they are part of the mainstream in science. I say, you know, thinking that we are not alone, that something like us existed a billion years ago elsewhere on an exoplanet, and then searching for any technological equipment that they might have sent to our vicinity is not speculative. It's very much common sense because we know that a substantial fraction of the sun-like stars have a planet like the Earth roughly at the same separation. And therefore, the dice was rolled billions of times within the Milky Way galaxy alone. And what is the chance that we are the pinnacle of creation? Very small. Most likely, there was a scientist smarter than Albert Einstein who lived on an exoplanet a billion years ago. And the civilization who benefited from that uh, scientist could have launched probes that by now would have reached the solar system. And therefore, the only way to find out and learn from them, that's my real hope that, you know, we, we might actually learn, we'll have a shortcut uh, in terms of getting new scientific knowledge. In order to do that, we need to be open-minded and basically search the sky for things that are not rocks. You know, when you walk on the beach, you find most of the time seashells or rocks that are naturally produced, but every now and then you find a plastic bottle. And uh, we should examine whether there is a plastic bottle coming from outer space anywhere. Yeah, that seems to be like your mission. I mean, obviously you're using scientific data to suggest that, uh, or to say that Oumuamua is, you know, uh, of extraterrestrial origin. But also it seems like you have this mission of just getting people to sort of open their minds up a little bit to the idea of life outside of Earth. And Well, you know, over the past 50 years, we uh, sent uh, five interstellar probes into space. And um, just think a billion years from now, they would reach the edge of the outskirts of the Milky Way galaxy, the other side of the Milky Way galaxy. And um, and then, um, you know, one of them could collide with an exoplanet and then the scientists there would wonder what kind of a meteor it is. And unless they are curious enough to search the ocean floor for the fragments from this uh, 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 New Horizons spacecraft, for example, they would not uh, figure it out. That uh, And so that's uh, one possibility that you, you can have space trash that accidentally collides with a planet and you see it as a meteor but there could also be functional devices that we haven't sent yet equipped with artificial intelligence so that they are autonomous they are not waiting for guidance from their senders and that's the preferred way to go because you know biological creatures like ourselves were designed to survive uh, through natural selection uh, we can survive on the surface of earth but we are not equipped to survive long distance through interstellar space and uh, electronic gadgets are much better su suited for that. And so to me, it sounds like AI astronauts are the way to go in exploring interstellar space. And that's what I imagine an encounter will be with. It will not be a creature. Uh, it will just be an advanced gadget if it's functional.
Yeah. I mean, that's also pretty interesting. Um, popular science or popular science fiction, you know, had like little green aliens in these UAPs like uh, or UFOs. And um, but now that like the public re- perception has shifted to possibly them being like AI or completely autonomous, like drones, stuff like that. So uh, with Oumuamua, do you think that was potentially a um, a drone like um, vehicle like um hurtling through space because i believe in your book you said that it was uh now possibly defunct like that that ship yeah. itself we don't have enough uh, data on a more to figure out what its uh, purpose was what its nature was uh we only know that it was flat like a pancake from the variation of reflected sunlight as it was tumbling every eight hours and we also know that it had very unusual properties but we cannot figure out what it meant to do. And if it was flat and thin, it could have been a leaflet from another planet uh, giving us guidance as to, I mean, sort of like a, let, a love letter telling us what to do. Or it could have been a mother spacecraft that released some uh, uh, sort of like dandelion seeds into the inner solar system that are small probes that are now looking around and checking um, what exists um, around Earth, around Mars, around Venus, or uh, it could have been defunct and just, um, you know, a surface layer from a bigger spacecraft that was torn apart. And we saw it as a thin, flat uh, object. Um, It's not clear what it was, but um, clearly if, if we were to send a spacecraft that would come close to it or even land on it, we could figure out what it's made of and and what its purpose could be and frankly i would love to press a button on such an object (laughs) yeah (laughs) so would i i think a lot of us would um so this like controversy that you're like experiencing are you like how are you dealing with this personally well it's remarkable that over the past uh, year and a half since my book came out uh, uh, a lot of uh, very uh, wealthy and influential uh, individuals came to the porch of my home and I had the conversations with them. And uh, a few of them uh, donated the, the $4 million to the Galileo project. Uh, and um, I had about 1,700 uh, podcast interviews uh, since my book came out. It was translated to 25 uh, languages, 28 editions, three in Spanish. Uh, and um, also, you know, it, it became bestseller in many, many countries, including in the New York Times. And uh, I just completed the, my next book. It should come out in June 2023, uh, and in which I talk uh, primarily about uh, the implications to humanity. Mm. What would that? What's the title of that book? It, uh, it is called Interstellar. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. Awesome. And that's in 2023. You said. June 2023. Oh, well, I'm going to get that. So that's cool. (laughs) Um, I don't think I have any other questions. I said, uh, we said we'd go for 30 minutes. Um, Dr. Avi Loeb, this is a pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, I wish you the best and I will be getting your book in 2023. So thank you very much for the, for the interview. Thank you so much. It's a learning experience for all of us. Yes, and, uh, yeah. We just uh, do, should not uh, pretend that we know more than we actually know. Yes, I hope. Yeah, I think that's great departing wisdom. So thank you very much, doctor. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.